Hey Allies, it's Gabby. Welcome to this week's episode of The Missing Alliance. This podcast contains disturbing content that may be triggering to some listeners, including but not limited to graphic descriptions of violence, sexual assault, self-harm, and trauma. Listener discretion is advised. If you feel uncomfortable or distressed, please consider seeking support from a mental health professional or a helpline. From the first settlers who came to our shores, from the first American Indian families who befriended them, men and women have worked together to build this nation. Too often the women were unsung and sometimes their contributions went unnoticed. But the achievements, leadership, courage, strength, and love of the women who built America was as vital as that of the men whose names we know so well. President Jimmy Carter made this ring loud and clear when he designated March 2nd through 8th as National Women's History Week in 1980. This occasion originally began in Santa Clara, California, as a local event to coordinate with International Women's Day on March 8th, back in 1978. Since then, it's grown into a wonderful month-long event, digging into women's stories across the world. With that in mind, I have a story for you that I can guarantee you have never heard before. I've mentioned how I founded a nonprofit organization, True Crime Replay, to help missing persons, their families, and other trauma survivors. But I haven't yet explained why. I recently posted a string of emails on Twitter documenting my journey working through my own story. In the trailer for this podcast, I mentioned that I'm a survivor of being a missing person. After receiving a flood of texts and direct messages, it became clear that no one was really aware of my experience. While initially I thought that, I mean, nobody had asked me about it, I was quickly reminded that it's not a question that people usually think to ask. So let me share a little bit of my story and a lesson in history. before the internet and social media, where the garden hoses were rampant. Streetlights dictated when it was time to come home. Being an early 90s baby, I got to jam out to Britney in her schoolgirl uniform. I got to buy, buy, buy it with NSYNC and experience records, cassettes, VHS, floppy disks, and thumb drives, all before high school. All the things that these young whippersnappers are currently discovering on TikTok were my jam. I still use the original LOL emoji, you know, that one that's not rolling over. My hair is permanently side parted and I fully accepted. I traded in my cool card long ago. Many people have close friends from childhood. Wine drunk mom photos on their Insta with their high school besties and now are raising second gen best friends. However, those with childhood trauma may resonate with the fact that that isn't everyone's reality, and it certainly isn't mine. 
I grew up in Wallingford, Connecticut. Before it was as populated and full of fast food, car dealerships, and chain stores as it is now. We had a Bickfords, a Super Kmart where my mom worked, and a super haunted elementary school that had been previously hit by a tornado. Everyone swore, saying Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary in the original bathroom by the cafeteria with the lights off meant you would surely die. When I was young, my dad was a full-blown alcoholic and had severe mental health issues. My brother and I shared the third floor of a two-bedroom house, and we would cower and cuddle together in the playroom at night when our parents would fight, gripping the coarse olive drab carpet. While I wasn't aware of what was going on downstairs with the thudding, my nights were full of nightmares, of being a Barbie doll on the shelf in the store, watching my dad walk past me over and over again and not picking me. Yes, I've spoken about this a lot with my therapist. Eventually, my dad moved out, and my mom did her best. She gave us books about divorce, let us know what other kids in our class might be familiar because their parents were also divorced. We had action plans in case dad ever showed up at school, if he ever saw us playing outside or showed up to events. But this story isn't actually about my dad. His absence created an opportunity for another predator to sneak in that was always there in plain sight. What I've noticed as a theme in my life, especially in the late 90s and early thousands, when people were just beginning to talk about trauma, was that everyone was so willing to write off behavior and blame it on past trauma that they missed all the signs right in front of them. My gram, my great-grandmother, on my mom's paternal side, was a constant presence in my life. She filled that void left by my absent father and other family members who later drifted away. She supported me in everything, from sick days to extracurricular activities like softball games, chorus recitals, and marching band parades. She even took me to church every week and was always there when I needed her. What always puzzled me was that she shared a birthday with my grandma Linda's second husband, my mom's stepfather, and they lived on the same street. Despite this, the two of them hated each other so much. Every Sunday, I would wake up early, try to sneak jeans and sneakers underneath my dress with her protest, and attend church with my gram at 9.30 a.m. on the dot. Afterward, we would sometimes stop for lunch at the local diner or McDonald's before she dropped me off at my grandparents' house while my mom was at work or getting some rest. I was grandpa's favorite, and he always gave me special treatment, even if it meant fudging the rules. He always insisted on a hug before I left, and the summers were the best. The big yard with its twisting path in the woods behind the community pool. The gardens with fresh berries, the swings and sprinklers, and fresh hand-shaken ice cream. The wood shop to get crafty in, and the coolest place in the house, and I mean literally like the coldest place in the house, was the basement. 
especially on those hot summer days. It was every pre-internet child's dream. Hey, and I even got to play Neopets on the computer sometimes. Sometime around fourth grade, his attention started driving in an invisible wedge I wasn't even aware of between me and the rest of my family. If I was ever in trouble, I just called grandma's house. I couldn't have known all of this was calculated, intentional, and with a very specific reason in mind. It's called grooming. Puberty was quickly setting in, and that attention then came with contingencies. All my friends started to talk about boys, and I was getting a talking to how no boy would ever be better than him. It started with mild hugs that lasted too long, until I was drowning, isolated, wounded. As time went on, I began to realize that my grandfather's attention was not innocent or loving. It had become this twisted game for him to see how close he could get to being caught and how he could manipulate and control me. This went on for over a year until the second summer leading into sixth grade when I started to resist his advances. Instead of showering me with affection, he began to use threats and painful punishment when I misbehaved. Finally, the unspeakable happened. I was pressed against the cement wall in the basement. My shorts jumbled at my feet when I felt vibrations coming closer. The door burst open, and finally, my grandma was going to save me. I crumbled like a piece of crumpled paper as I fell to the ground. The weight of the last year crashing down on me. It was finally over. Amidst the screaming and yelling, I numbly tried to find my underwear, wondering, is he going to go for the gun in the bedside drawer that he always threatened me with? Is my brother safe? All those threats he made come true? But then there was nothing. In reality, that silence was deafening. No phone ringing. No rush of my mom to come get me. No police or sirens. At some point, my grandma came and helped me up the creaky stairs while he went out to the wood shop to stay out of the way. She led me to the scratchy, gingham, burnt sienna couch in my mom's bedroom, my mom's childhood bedroom, and assured me that she took care of everything. That she talked to my mom and the police and was telling them and everything was going to be all right. The months that followed that, and I mean months, were probably the hardest to bear. Obviously, he had been right. The police agreed that what he was doing was normal. But why did my mom keep sending me there? We had had all these talks, good touch, bad touch, trusted people, we had rehearsed fire escape plans and even discussed what to do if my dad ever showed up. Would my dad have taught me all of this if he didn't leave? Were all my friends going through the same training? How do you even ask someone that? In seventh grade, I had my chance. Sam, the neighbor, asked me if I had ever had sex or kissed a boy. 
which of course I had. Hadn't everyone during their time of getting puberty? It wasn't until then that I realized that something was really, really wrong. As she ran around telling everyone I wasn't a virgin, like it was a big deal. The fog of cognitive dissonance quickly dissolved as people reacted to me differently. My friends evaporated with it as suddenly every guy in school was talking to me, which bred contempt and animosity with every girl I tried to maintain friendships with. That surge of attention and realization of how wronged I was, with that surge of attention and realization of how wronged I was, I planned my escape. If no one was going to get me out, I was. And so I went missing. I planned with a friend, Carly. I grabbed a bag and instead of walking home from the bus, I walked to her house. It was liberating, adrenaline filled, nauseating, but we popped popcorn. We watched signs, the fifth element, we ate a lot of junk food. The details to this day get a little hazy. My friend's sister worked at a woman and children's center for abused women. That was the plan. Make it until the weekend. We'd have her sister come pick me up and I'd just go live there instead. Day two rolled around and I hid as her mom went to work. That was the hardest day as Carly went to school to not raise the alarm and I was alone. Every moment I was afraid they were going to come, afraid to eat and walk past a window, afraid to turn on the TV above volume two in case neighbors heard a TV blaring and called it in. After school, the calls started to come in from girls who had heard whispers of where I was and that I was missing. People would ask if I was there, if someone could talk to me. But these were the same girls I could never tell if they were my friend or foe. And I was so close to freedom. There was a linen closet in this condominium that led up to a tiny crawl space in a attic, for the lack of a better term. I crawled the shelves with a blanket and some snacks up into the abyss of this unfinished space, balancing on raw wood and a sea of pink painful, irritating fiberglass. It was better than going back though. It was in those quiet moments, writing that reality sunk in as I thought about my brother and if anyone would protect him, honestly, he would get to continue to be the golden child that everyone loved and commended on how talented he was. And I was a gangly mess acting out and struggling in school because I'm just too focused on surviving. I can't tell you how long I was up there. I tried to nap and that grace would not come to me. I heard the knocking. I was terrified. I could hear crying, stern voices. The walls were closing in on me as I could hear the doorknob turn and they were calling my name. The sparse wood board leading into the crawl space lifted as a flashlight shone in. Deer in the headlights doesn't even begin to explain my reaction in that moment of fight, flight, or fawn. I went back into the softer corners of my head, remembering my little brother running around in a blanket thinking he was invisible because he couldn't see us, so we couldn't see him. And I channeled that energy into this moment. 
If I keep my eyes closed and I can't see them, they can't see me. As if this moment wasn't already up there in the worst moments of my life, I was drowning out every word until my ears perked up fast, laser focused, when they said, he's here. He who? My dad? My stepdad? My teacher? <laughs> Who's here? We thought you might need a familiar face. He insisted in coming, seeing you are so close. Your grandpa is here. You brought him? I internally screamed. My one escape. I was building up that moment. The police would sit me down. They'd hand me a hot cocoa, even though it's really hot outside, like I saw in the movies. And I would confess the reality of my life at that point. That I was going to tell them this new game of rubbing me violently till I cried silently just on the other side of the door, feet away from my family, just to prove he was in control. And I couldn't take it anymore. I stopped resisting as I cried silently, just as I did every time he victimized me, as he victimized me again. They held onto my shorts as I was shaking too violently to climb down on my own. The crushing numbness swarmed and swallowed me up whole as I walked through the kitchen to the parking lot, where there he was leaning up against a police cruiser, signaling me to hug him. My skin crawled. Months went by. Everything continued on as it was. I started planning to take my own life and would brazenly leave the classroom to grab heaps of pamphlets from the counselor's office, practically begging for help. Just ask me, please. Abuse. Child abuse. What to do when you're being abused. Rape sex abuse, suicidal thoughts, each brightly colored on the wall in an array of issues that they can clearly see you taking one after the other, and still silence. Eventually, my mom did find my diary, where I only dictated the surface level of what was going on. She took me from school. She asked me questions. She got me to the police station. I was much too embarrassed to tell them everything, and I saw with every word the wincing on her face like it was a death by a thousand paper cuts. Everyone's first reaction is to say they're so sorry. I'm not. My story is so like many others who have gone missing, the runaways everyone is writing off, the ones that don't get an alert, the ones people are say are just rebellious. They're mad at their parent over taking their phone, or they'll just come back. I am lucky that my time missing was safe within those walls. But as so many girls I have spoken to through the years of advocacy, many had a fate much worse than mine. Homelessness, violence, starvation, sex trafficking. One of my first friends that I made through my healing journey, whose story mimicked my own, had escaped Haiti and her torture to be adopted by a loving family in a well-off community, and her monsters still hunted her. 
Just as with my own story, she tried to talk to the wrong people about it at school. She became the target of bullying from the girls and sexual harassment from the boys and ultimately took her own life. My story drove me to find the others that felt like they didn't have a voice to give them one, to create my own platform so they couldn't be silenced. My story led me on a journey to advocate for other survivors and then into the misting community where I can understand better than most what it was to be missing and see the recovery and the need to heal afterwards. Healing is never ending. It's been 20 years since I've had three beautiful girls, founded a nonprofit organization, fell in love with true crime, more specifically watching bad guys go down for awful things they committed, and became a student pursuing my forensic psychology degree. But the trauma is still there, as it is in those tweets I brought up initially. Linda's side of the family stood by her, at the expense of any relationship with me. I recently did an interview on moving past murder with Collier Landry and spoke of my story. And afterwards, I'd actually gotten an unrelated email in the family email chain. I decided I needed to put it out there and let them know I'd begun speaking of this publicly, that this very podcast was coming, and that I was in school. One of my great aunts responded negatively, which uncovered the depth of generational trauma. I want to read you a quote from Linda back in 2004, partially to point out where this estrangement began and partially to show how maddening healing a trauma cycle is. She said, of course, I still love her and I know she doesn't want to talk about him. I can't just walk away. I have to think about my financial future and what I will eventually do. The sting of being a victim of child sex abuse to only be told you aren't even worth your family's attention because of money is only the tip of the iceberg. I realized even after he admitted to what he had done in court, serve time was a registered sex offender, that it simply wasn't going to be enough. That to this day, people in my family don't believe me. In a recent email, my aunt demanded to know dates, police officers' names, district attorneys, as if to discredit being repeatedly told of his guilty plea. And denying that earlier email, informing her of his registration as an offender. We've been asked to attend reunions year after year. And year after year, I've seen pictures posted to social media with a sex offender in them or his enabler and sometimes alongside children. It led me to wonder why and what reality was this acceptable? In 2006, this was addressed again with the older generation of my family and another email from my mom. She stated, it has been my intention to avoid this all along. However, too many things are going unsaid and I need to dispel all gossip and rumors. Many of you already know, but I will give you the facts. Harold sexually abused Gabrielle. Charges were filed and he admitted what he had done. He pled guilty and served time in prison. 
He's now on the sex offender registry. Many other details are available, but it's been my experience that most people don't really want to know. We will not be attending the reunion. I'm doing what I can to protect my family. I know that this has caused great outrage, but before you judge me, think about your own family, especially your own children, and how you would feel. I have not asked anyone to take sides. I'm simply explaining our absence so it doesn't cause any more commotion. I am sorry to those of you who expressed that I shouldn't be discussing this matter. You can continue to fall down this rabbit hole as I began digging into the family history and found a series of people who were victims who then became perpetrators as the cycle of generational abuse passed on like a torch. And it ends with me. Reportedly, I had to hear from multiple sources that there was trauma and abuse in my grandmother's generation where siblings turned on each other, stemming even further back from the generation before them. And who knows how far back beyond that. My dad, after being estranged most of my life, tried connecting with me in adulthood, which meant I just had to realize how sick he was up until the summer of 2021, when I found out he took his own life. I spoke with the detective at length after trying to piece together what I could, only to find out after all this time, he was only 20 minutes away and he'd been reaching out, but I hadn't seen the messages. My story is of perseverance. I've traveled the country to help people. I've protested, marched on DC. I've been in search parties, news interviews. I've been knocked off my horse so many times I've realized I don't need to ride on someone else's back when I have my own two feet. If you are a generational trauma survivor, no matter the trauma, I see you. You're not in the trenches alone. If you've run away, if you're thinking of running away, if you're hurting, if you're considering taking your life, there is more after this moment. Attached to this episode is a bunch of resources because you are seen and your trauma is valid. When it comes to the missing, especially those pesky runaways, think twice before not looking closely at their face like you would for an Amber Alert. Give the families that have a missing loved one that are in the media spotlight some grace. And never forget that trauma loves company. It's up to you, every single one of you, to be the light in their dark. Cling to that light. Even in my story, there's been allies in my family. So thank you. You know who you are. True Crime Replays, Private Investigator, and my best friend, Chloe Shaver, specializes in looking for runaways and had some really unique points. I think what makes searching for a runaway uniquely challenging is that you don't always know what they're running from. You don't know if they were upset by something small or if they're running from an abusive home. I also think it's really challenging that when somebody is labeled as a runaway, that oftentimes their case doesn't get enough attention and people forget that runaway is missing too. 
I see families go through a wide variety of emotions when they have a loved one that's run away. I often see frustration because often law enforcement doesn't work as hard to find runaways. Um, I often see frustration because of the comments from social media and local people once somebody's labeled a runaway. I, um, I wish I could tell children that choose to run away that there are other options and other resources. And as a child, I know it seems completely unobtainable to get out of a situation you're in or maybe compromise the situation that you're in, that you're running from, but there are other options. And oftentimes when you run, you're not running into better options. You're running into danger. It's been incredible to see how the public actually does help especially in cases of runaways. Often they aren't getting the attention in media that um, other missing children would normally get. And so when the public really rallies together, communicates with each other, throws ideas at each other, um, I've found that it really does help bring that person home. If you want to get more involved with missing persons and trauma survivors, you can visit tcrinc.org for more information. Thank you for tuning in and for being an ally. I appreciate your support and willingness to learn and grow with us. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd really appreciate if you take a moment to give me a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. This helps me reach more people like you and grow our audience, which allows me to keep telling you these wonderful stories. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you. Reach out to The Missing Alliance on any social media platform or send us an email at missingalliance at tcrinc.org.